0: Thank you. We do have a beautiful savior indeed. If you would, would you turn in your Bibles this morning to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. If you would keep your Bibles open this morning, I'll probably be jumping around quite a bit. But we're just reading three verses for our passage this morning. But he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This ends the reading of God's word. Would you please pray with me as we seek his help to understand it? Father, I confess that I am a sinful person, that oftentimes I am a fraud. And yet your word is perfect, your word is holy, your word is instruction for how to live. Father, we ask that you would look past the sins of the preacher this morning, that we would see that your son Jesus through this text. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, open our ears to listen, open our hearts to change. Father, we need your help. We ask that you send your Holy Spirit here with us this morning. Help us to understand. Open up this text to us. Let us see Jesus. And we pray this in the name of your son. Amen. Well, I want to let y'all in on some trade secrets of sermon writing today, or at least my process of sermon writing. So whenever I preach, I always like to begin by telling a story using an illustration, maybe from a movie or a book or something like that. And I almost always write my introductions last. I always want to know where we're going in the middle of an introduction. So it's always last. And so as I was writing this sermon, as I was doing my prep for this sermon, I was trying to think of a way to introduce the passage. And so the point that I wanted to drive home in the introduction is that this scene in Micah 6 is the scene of a courtroom. There's a trial going on. And so I start thinking through, well, maybe there's a movie out there with a courtroom scene. What are are some of the best courtroom dramas out there? And so I read a few top ten lists. Always at the top of the list was Twelve Angry Men, and I'm thinking, okay, I watched that in eighth grade when my teacher made me do it. I can probably do that one, but I didn't remember anything at all about it. I've not seen it. It was made in like 1957. Um, I don't remember the plot. Don't remember any of the characters. Know nothing about it. So I was like, you know what? Let's pull up in YouTube. So I watched the opening scene of the movie. It did nothing for me. I couldn't remember anything at all from the movie. I was like, that's not going to jog my memory. So I found a video that said 12 angry men best Scene," And I watched the best scene from the movie 12 angry men. And I still have no idea what's going on. It was a good scene, but I don't know the plot. I don't know the characters. I don't know the story of this this courtroom scene that's going on. And so I said to myself, a brief moment I thought about this, I said, well, if I needed to know what 12 Angry Men was about, I should probably just watch the whole movie. Well, I didn't do that. And uh, didn't really have the time to do that. But all of a sudden, it hit me. The very thing that I was wanting to communicate through this movie, 12 Angry Men, is the very thing that I'm realizing through this process. And it's that context is super important. I needed the context of the plot of 12 Angry Men to understand what the movie is about. If I took just that middle clip, the best scene of the movie, it still doesn't explain to me what the movie is about. I've got to have the context for it. And so that's the exact same thing I wanted to see about our passage this morning, is that we read three verses. Three verses out of a whole chapter. One of these verses is probably one of the most famous verses in history. Many of you know it. You've probably even sang a song about it. He has shown thee... Oh man. And I'm not going to do any (laughs) more. It's a very tweetable, it's a very Instagrammable verse, Micah 6 8 is. But there's a whole context behind it that that empowers it, that that there's a reason why it's being said. And if we read that verses 6 and 7, there's almost like a disconnect because there's things in there like human sacrifice, odd stuff going on. What does that mean? This verse, Micah 6, 8, it does not exist in a vacuum. we got to know the context for it. And so the context of this verse sheds much light onto what God is saying and why he's saying it. And so I want to set the stage for you by way of introduction and try to place this verse in biblical history, the things that are going on in the world when this book was written. And so if you're unfamiliar with the history, Israel was God's chosen people, but they forsook God. They turned to their idols. They turned away from God. And so God gave them over to their idols. And He sent nations to conquer them. They were kicked out of their homeland. They go into exile. And that's where we get the minor prophets. They're not minor because they're not important, they're minor because they're shorter. And it's all about the time when the people of Israel were out in exile. Minor prophets are some of my favorite books of the Bible. And so it's in Micah that we get Israel is going into exile if you flip back to chapter one real quick and you look at verse three this is what it says it says for behold the lord is coming out of his place will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth what this means is god is coming down and he's coming to judge but israel knows this they've read their bibles they know their bibles they know that god is coming to judge and for them they think that's a good thing He is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. He's coming to separate God's chosen people with the people who are not God's people. So they know this. They know this is good doctrine for the Jew in this ancient time. It would be accepted by everyone. However, there's a gut punch in verse five of chapter one to the ancient Jew. So he's coming, he's coming to judge. And if you look at verse five, all this is for the transgression of, of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel this is bad news for Israel the Lord is coming to judge and you're not on the right side and so the book begins with this doctrine that they love that the Lord is coming and it immediately says this is bad news for you this is bad news Israel okay, I hear you, God. Maybe maybe we did stray a little bit. Maybe we wandered in the desert for a little while, but, but it can't be that bad for us, can it? And then boom, there's verse nine of chapter one. Her wound is incurable. This is how far they've gone. It says that they are incurable. And what Micah does in the next few chapters, he goes on, he builds a case against Israel for what they've done and why they've sinned. And I'm going to mention two of them. In chapter two, we learn that God's people, they don't care at all about the weak or the poor. That is their sin. They don't care about the weak or the poor. In verse two of chapter two, it says that they seize fields. The Hebrew word here means it take by force. They take people's land. Make it even worse, in verses 8 to 9 of chapter 2, it says that widows and dependent children were the victims of this. So not only are they are just taking land from just anyone, it's widows and dependent children. In chapter 3, he spells out that they have power, but they refuse to use it for good for everyone. They only use it for themselves. They're in this position of power, and they're only benefiting, number one. Only benefiting myself, and they look over people one commentator, Stephen Um, I'll quote him a few more times this morning. He sums it up like this. He says, all of this is driven at the bottom by their desires. They have become so malformed, so curled inward, that a life that's lived this way, one that's about me, mine, and my stuff, has actually come to seem normal to them. A life pointed inward is now normal to them. Y'all, there's wicked things going on in Israel in the days that Micah's writing this book. And look, y'all, if I was deathly ill and I went to a doctor, I went to Marcus, went to Ben, and they look at me and they say, oh, you're right, Jeremy, you're fine. Just shake it off. That is not a good thing for me. If I'm deathly ill, what I need to hear is, is Marcus say, dude, you're sick and you need to do these things so you can get better. And that's what's going on with Israel this morning. Micah is doing this to Israel. He's showing them their sin. He's saying that you're sick and you need to do this to get better. You need to do this to get better. Heed these words or the infection's gonna get worse. So this morning I have three points for us this morning. I like alliteration if you don't know me and so they're all R words and there's two of them for each point. So the first thing I want us to see is a rotten response. Second thing I want us to see is a righteous requirement. The third thing I want us to see this morning is a redemptive replacement. So a rotten response, a righteous requirement, and a redemptive replacement. So let's look at our first point this morning, a rotten response. So I've mentioned already, this is taking place in a courtroom. There's a trial going on. And at the beginning of this chapter, chapter six that we're in, you have words like plead your case, an indictment legal words that are going on here. They're good legal terms. All the lawyers in the room are nodding their heads. We've heard these words. We do them. We speak them every single day. This is a courtroom that's going on here. And so God, he's bringing about charges against Israel and Micah is his prosecutor. So charges are being brought about. There's debate being had. And so this is what the scene goes like in chapter six of Micah. This is the courtroom scene. In verses one and two, God calls an assembly together and there's mountains and hills as witnesses. And we don't have time to get into that this morning, but it's really cool. It's actually very interesting about the mountains and hills. But he calls together this assembly. And in verses three to five, there's an argument being made by God. And in verses six and seven, it's the response of a would be worshiper of Jesus. So then the response happens. And then in verse eight, there's correction being applied. And in verses 9 to 16 of this chapter, God renders his judgment and casts a sentence. A verdict has been given and there's a sentence given. More on this later. But you can see from the argument of God, look at verse 3 of chapter 6. It says, oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? And he goes on and he lists many of the things that he's done for them. And so I want to make note of this word real quick, wearied, right here. How have I wearied you? God says to Israel. It's kind of a worn out emotional exhaustion from a hardship, is what this implies. Del Ralph Davis, he cuts right to the heart here. This is what he says. He says, Yahweh wants to know how he has worn them out, how he has been such a drag or proven to be so boring. How have I wearied you? And he goes on and he talks about all the deeds that he's done, and he's basically saying, this is the same God that delivered you from slavery in Egypt. This is the same God that gave you great leaders like Moses and Aaron and Miriam. This is the same God that even protected you from the evil of King Balak. It's like he's saying, you get bored of that? You're bored of me providing for you. And you list all those reasons that he's done in verses three to five. And the reason why he lists those things is not just for us to just know them or to be aware of them, but he's showing them a list of evidence of his grace towards them. And it's evidence that is worthy of repentance and obedience. This is what God has done. This is what God has done in your life. It's the evidence of his grace. So how do you look at God? Are you bored with him? Are you apathetic? towards him. Remember what God has done. Remember how he sustained faith and how he can overcome even apathy. Then we come to verse 6, our passage today. And it's the beginning of this rotten response. It's from the would-be worshipers of Israel. And read again with me. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And so basically their response to God after they heard all that he's done for them is what more do you want from me, God? What more do you want from me? And so there's something that they miss that's entirely crucial here that I don't want us to miss this morning. In verse six, it says that they come before the Lord. This is language of worship. They are gathering in God's house. This is temple worship that they are thinking of here. And so everything that they say after this is related to how they're to worship the Lord. And each one, each line escalates in costliness. This is important because to the ancient Jew, the single most important thing in life was worship. The thing that was most important in their lives was temple worship. And so you have God's people in God's land. They're worshiping in the temple according to the laws that God has given them on how they are to worship him. And shouldn't that be enough? Shouldn't that be enough for you, God? Isn't that good? And what Micah does is he completely dismantles them. He rips them apart. They say, would the Lord be pleased with these things? And the answer is no. The Lord is not pleased with these things. And so the big message here is that God, um, the big message here is that doing what is good is more about than just showing up to worship. The Christian life for us is more about just being here on Sunday morning. Stephen UM, who I just mentioned, he says the basic point here is that God is not pleased if we elevate one aspect of what he requires of us as his people while ignoring the rest. If we focus on one part and we ignore everything else, that does not please God. It's all a sham if this happens, it's all a sham if what happens in the temple worship doesn't affect what happens outside the doors. And so it's the same for us today, right now, here in this room. So there's something else to note here. This section, verses 6 and 7, kind of meant a sort of a satire, the satire that's going on here. It's it's meant to sound absurd, this would-be worshiper of Israel. They say, well, what about burnt offerings, God? So the thing about burnt offerings is that it's very costly to do. It's only one of the many kind of offerings that you can do. But when you do a burnt offering, it consumes the creature completely. It's burned up. There's nothing to use. You can't use it for food. There's no other thing. It's just a waste. Completely consumes it. But he makes it even more costly. The Annie's up when it's a calf that's a year old. They spent a year raising this calf, feeding it, protecting it, when the law only requires the calf to be seven days old to sacrifice. So there's, there's a cost involved to raising this calf, to, to, to having a burnt offering of a one-year-old calf. Uh, one writer said this, he said, one-year-old calves have shekels written all over it. It's expensive. It's costly. And then there's an offer of thousands of rams, thousands of rivers of oil. One translation says torrents of oil. This is a lot. This is extravagance. You know, if that one year old calf is not good enough, let's do a thousand rams, God. Will that be enough? Will that be enough? They're just pouring it on. And then we get the most shock, shocking suggestion of all human sacrifice. Should I give my firstborn child for my sin? Should I give my offspring for my transgression? Would that then be enough for you, God? Is that how far my devotion is to go? And of course, the, the obvious answer to all of these questions is no. It's no That will not please the Lord. But here's the point that this is making. And again, I'm quoting another one. You can give everything that means anything your time, your money, your possessions, your goods, doing church until you're blue in the face, but it's all a sham if it doesn't crystallize as concrete love for your neighbors. You can give it all, but it doesn't mean anything if it doesn't manifest itself when we leave these doors. And this is what I mean by it's a rotten response. Their response to God is rotten. Sometimes you can pick up an apple that looks fine on the outside, but it's rotten to its core on the inside. And that's exactly what's going on in Israel. They're they're going to temple worship. They're doing all the temple worship in the right ways, but it's just a facade for who they really are. It's not affecting anything. They 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 are not protecting the weak and vulnerable in their society. And God is not fooled by this. He's not fooled at all. Uh, if you have your Bibles open, you can flip to the left a couple pages to Amos 5.21. And look at how God responds to a similar situation in Amos. Amos 5.21. I hate, I this is God talking by the way. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God is not pleased by their worship based on the fact of how they live their lives. Justice will roll and if we are not engaged in justice, God is not pleased with us. Now, this looks a lot different in our day because we don't really do with sacrifices and calves and rams and stuff. But what does this look like in our lives? What are the ways in which we are going at length to show God our devotion to Him that are wrong headed? What are the things that we get involved in? What are the things that we fill our lives with to make ourselves busy to show? Look at all that I'm doing for you, God. Israel wanted to show evidence of its commitment to God, but intensifying its religious devotion and activity. And so how do we do this in our lives? How do we try to intensify this? Do we have our own rotten responses to God? Let's look at our second point this morning, a righteous requirement. And so we see the righteous requirement in verse eight. It's the verse that we all know. It's Micah's answer to the rotten response. And so we said in our last point that the answer to all those questions is no, N-O, no. But Micah lays out gently. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So he begins by saying, you already know this. You know what the Lord requires, Israel. Israel. It's not all those things he's told you. And he told you back in Deuteronomy, that exact same thing. Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 13 says, this is what you're supposed to do. You're to practice justice. You're to love kindness or love mercy. And you're to walk humbly with your God. That's what you're to do, Israel. And so I'm going to break these three things down here in just a minute. But first I want to give you a quick disclaimer about this. Micah is not laying out the way to salvation here. It is not do these things and you're saved. That's not the path of salvation. But doing these things, um, what he's doing is showing how people are recipients of God's grace. Remember verses 3 to 5, all that God has done? He's showing how people are recipients of God's grace and how they're to live and respond to God in light of that grace. Not the path of salvation. Doing these things doesn't mean that you're saved. Anyone can practice these things. Salvation comes through faith alone. We'll get at that more in just a minute. But he's showing us how we are to live. And so this is the answer to that age-old question. In light of this, how then should I live my life? If God has done all these things, how then should I live? How do I respond to that? And the answer is he's not looking for an extravagant or busy with good things lives. What he's looking for is a faithful life. A faithful life. And so the prophet gives us three things here. And I'll be brief on these three things. The first is to do justice. To do justice, what what does it mean to do justice? Gary Smith, a seminary professor, he says this of justice, he says, when people in Micah's audience forcibly confiscate other people's land or possessions, like in chapter two, when they treat people inhumanely, like in chapter three, when they selfishly cheat on others so that their financial positions will be enhanced, like also in chapter three, these are unjust social relationships. And so at its most simplest level, What doing justice means is not doing that. Don't steal from people. Don't treat people inhumanely. Don't use other people for financial gain. And so on one hand, when we think about justice, we think that justice is like retribution. And that's true. It's payback, right? It's it's, it's making things right. But there's another side of justice, and that's creating a society where everything is right, where it's looking out for the most vulnerable, where it's looking out for the most weak in our society. And so that's what the Bible means when it speaks of justice. And we can go on and on about what biblical justice is. There's no shortage of verses of justice in the Bible. It'd be a good word study for you to look into. We could do an awesome study of it. But the biblical concept of justice is all over Scripture. It's always about taking care of our neighbors, always. The second thing the prophet tells us is that we're to love kindness, that we're to love mercy. And so if you've spent any time at all around Longdale, you've probably heard what this word is for mercy. It's hesed, right? It's that, that unfailing love. Uh, it's, it's an unceasing, it's faithful love. It's, it's love that refuses to give up on someone. It says that I will be with you even when there's no gain for me. It's the kind of love that God has for his people. Hesed love. And so if we take justice a step further, we get this hessed love. John McKay describes it this way. He says, it's not an irksome performance of an imposed duty, but a glad and spontaneous action. So when we couple these two things together, we're not just to simply do justice, but we're also to take delight in doing it. We're to delight in doing justice. You know, as Bill would say to all the young people here in this room, I see this all the time with y'all. Uh, I've signed off on hundreds of community service hours over the years. And so there's a difference between doing mandatory community service and doing something because you're glad to do it. That's what it means to do justice and to love mercy. There's a difference there. It's not an imposed duty. It's a glad and spontaneous action. Then the third thing he tells us is to walk humbly with God. And so humbly. This is not arrogant. This is not presumptuous. This is not full of yourself you know it's the same chesed love that empowers that reshapes our longings it reshapes our desires and even reshapes who we are paul says i've been crucified it's no longer i who live but christ who lives in me we are new people thanks to this love and so what this does is it spurs us on to walk humbly with god and if we are walking with god we will want to be like him and the things that god loves become the things that we love that's what walking with God looks like. And walking with God is meant to be a life of ongoing fellowship. It's not meant to be like a, a visit to the emergency room. Ongoing fellowship with God. And so what does this look like in our lives? What is, what is doing justice? What does what loving mercy and walking humbly with God look like for you? Well, one of the primary ways that we can do this is is by taking our gaze off of self and putting it onto others, especially the vulnerable and the weak. And so, the truth of it, y'all, is that we don't have to go far off of Longdale Drive out here to find those who are on the margins of society. And I know this is hard. This is this is this is a hard thing for us to do. But I think one author gives us a good first step. He says, we must begin to wrench ourselves away from our comforts and idols. As we examine what it is that has a grip on our hearts, we can identify the natural obstacles to loving kindness and doing justice in our daily lives. So we start to turn our gaze away from ourselves, away from this inward way in which I'm often living my life, looking out for number one. We start to look outwards towards other people. And so this is the true way of walking with God. It's outwards, it's towards other people, doing justice, loving mercy. And so in verse eight, that's the correction that Israel needed. Verse eight is that righteous requirement that God requires of you. He has shown you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Do justice, love mercy and walk humbly with God. So we'll look real quick at our last point this morning. A redemptive replacement. So the courtroom scene doesn't end with verse 8. A verdict still comes. These people, they were just corrected. They've been shown their wrongdoing. And now the passage moves to God's verdict and the sentence for them. And so we see the verdict in verse 13. Therefore I, this again, this is God speaking. Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate, because of your sins so the verdict that comes in and it says guilty you are guilty Israel God is saying because you're so consumed with yourselves and maximizing your own flourishing at the expense of others you are guilty that righteous requirement of verse 8 it's not been met by these people and so God's judgment is coming to them and he goes on and he lists their sentence Their punishment. But I want to point you to one thing, verse 16. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation, your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. That's their punishment. That is their sentence for their guilty verdict, is that they shall bear scorn. It mentions Omri and Ahab. These these were ridiculously awful kings of Israel, probably the two most corrupt kings in the northern kingdom that ever existed. He says, you're following after them. And because of that, God's going to make you a desolation. And you will have the scorn of his people. And that's how this chapter ends. And we think maybe there's some good news in chapter 7, but good chapter 7 just opens up with woe and weeping. And so I want us to feel the weight of that this morning, the gravity of that verdict in that sentence. And it's an unpleasant thought. And such an unpleasant thought to me is because in the back of my mind is I know that I'm in that courtroom too and I have that same verdict pronounced on me. Guilty. Guilty. And if that's the sentence for Israel, well... I can put two and two together and figure out what my sentence is. All right, let's pray. Just kidding. We are not ending there. There is good news for you. There is good news for Israel. The story does not end there. Isaiah is a contemporary of Micah. He's writing at the exact same time Micah is. And there's a parallel passage in Micah, Micah 51. There's a few verses that are almost exactly the same as the sentence that's here in Micah 6. And now we're not going to read all of Isaiah 51. We're not going to read Isaiah 52 or 53. But I want to point out, so take my word for it. So Isaiah 51, you get that same sentence of Israel. And then in Isaiah 52 and 53, you might remember it's that famous passage about the suffering servant. The suffering servant. We know that the suffering servant is Jesus, the one who is coming to redeem. And so when I read Isaiah 51 and Micah 6:9 6, through 16, I'm kind of left thinking, what hope is there at all for Israel? Their wounds are incurable. What hope is there for them? But listen to the description of the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. Listen to it in light of that judgment of Micah 6:16. 6, listen he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not listen here surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted maybe scorned right scorned by God afflicted by God but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way towards themselves. And the Lord has laid on him, that suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. So if Micah ended with chapter 6, if our story ended with God's just judgment, we had to bear that scorn ourselves, we are cut off from God, and that's it. It's finished, period. End of sentence, close the book. However, God did not leave Israel there, and He does not leave you and me there either. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. And so he sent Jesus into the world to reverse this verdict on us. And how he reverses the verdict is that he takes the sentence on himself. The scorn that you're to receive, the desolation that you're to receive, he takes that. And what do you get? You get his gift, his prize, his righteousness, his reward. But I think Micah knew this. So the last place I'll get you to turn this morning, Micah chapter 7, verses 18. Listen to what Micah says. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love, hesed. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot and you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you've sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Friends, this is your God. This is the God that you have. It's a God who's compassionate. He's full of steadfast, unfailing love even when we are not faithful to him. He will cast our sins into the depths and so knowing this helps us grow in a deeper sense of awe and also a greater sense of what it means that Jesus bore our scorn and so I'll close with this is what, what does this matter what does this matter for you right now in this congregation what does it matter for our day in and day out everyday life Well, if you're anything at all like me, I always feel like I'm on trial. I always feel like I've got to do just enough to prove myself or my worth or maybe that I'm even a Christian at all. I always feel like I'm on trial. However, for those who are in Christ, the verdict has already been given. The verdict has already been given. And we're reminded of that verdict every week here in church in our comfort of the gospel. And so here's the verdict that is pronounced over you. It's Romans 8:1, 1, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. There's there there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is your verdict. Every day, at every hour, at every minute that's your verdict. And so we don't have to go about our lives living as if we're on trial. It's already been pronounced. And so there's no amount of performance. We, we, We sang it. No recitation of truth, no lifted hands, no tearful songs, no humble dress, no fervent prayer, no separation from the world, no list of those I'm not like, no list of virtues I can prove can justify a single word about me. There's no amount of performance that can get you that good verdict. It's already been pronounced on you. This is yours if you're in Christ. And this is because of what Jesus has done in our place. He took our sins on himself. He took on our punishment and he gives us his righteousness. And ultimately, this leads us to true freedom. Freedom from self-gain because we've already gained the most important thing. It's freedom from having to grit and grind our way through life because you're a child of God and you don't need to prove your value. Freedom to pursue the flourishing of others and glorify God in doing so. That is what true freedom looks like. One last quote from Stephen Om, the guy who I've quoted so much this morning. We have no more reason to walk around in fear. The gospel tells us that God already knows we are all frauds. We cannot hide the truth from him, but we do not need to. The charge and sentence have been absorbed. The court adjourned and we're free to go. We're free to go. So my question for you this morning is, do you have that freedom? Do you know if this verdict is yours? Would you join me in prayer?